Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, like we have been for about 37 weeks. And over the last month or so, we've been looking at Luke's examples that he provides of what the good soil of Jesus' parable of the sower looks like. And if you'll remember, Jesus teaches that the good soil are those who listen to God's Word and receive that Word uh, with a sincere heart, as if He is knocking at the door and they opened the door to Him and receive Him into their home, and in turn, they do what He says. And so far, after that initial teaching on the parable of the sower, we've seen these examples. The disciples turning to Jesus to save them in the midst of more than a severe storm on the Sea of Galilee, and then them wrestle over uh, who Jesus is when he calmed that storm by his word. We've seen a man possessed by literally a thousand demons and used as the scapegoat of the area of the Gerasenes, carrying their sin and shame and their death upon him. We've seen him be cleansed of his demons and in turn immediately become a faithful disciple who wanted to follow Jesus everywhere. We've seen a leader of a local synagogue in that area of Galilee go against what had to be the social pressure of the scribes and Pharisees and invite Jesus into his home, trusting that Jesus could not only heal his daughter, but once she dies, raise her from the dead. And then we've seen a woman who suffered from a discharge of, of blood for 12 years that rendered her perpetually unclean, barring her from the temple and worship and, and from being among God's people, even as it made her effectively barren. And we've seen her risk public shame and, and very real judgment because she was convinced that Jesus could heal her when no one else could. And these are all unlikely candidates for the good soil. They, they're probably very familiar to us, but to the original audience, they are all people they would not have expected. At least they, they, they don't fit with who they would have res expected to respond to, to Jesus' word, and yet they do. Yet they open the door to him and receive him into their house, so to speak. And now with chapter 5, Jesus sends out the 12 to engage in a, a John the Baptist-like ministry, proclaiming that the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is not coming, but has actually arrived. And they are empowered by Jesus and given authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Well, we're in chapter 9. Let's pick it up with verse 1. And when his disciples asked him, excuse me, that's chapter 8. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, nor staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded. 
But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word in your Son, and we pray that your Spirit would be among us right now to move in our hearts and minds, that those who already have faith in you would grow deeper in you, and those who do not have faith in you would be given eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we read in verse 1 that Jesus called the twelve Together And remember, at this point in his ministry, besides the large crowds, which were very large following him, Jesus had a number of committed disciples, more than just the twelve, even as the twelve were set apart as his official witnesses and as the, really the future foundation of reconstituted Israel around Jesus. And he gave the twelve power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So, Jesus gave them power and authority, and he didn't give it to every single one of his disciples, but just to the twelve. And he certainly didn't empower them to do whatever they wanted. Jesus empowered the twelve to be sent out as his official ambassadors to do the very things that we have seen Jesus already do and do it in his name. So whereas Jesus cast out demons by his own word, the disciples cast them out in Jesus' name. So Jesus says, come out, and the disciples say, come out in Jesus' name. And it's very similar to how God sent Moses before Pharaoh and empowered him to speak for God and gave him signs that demonstrated the truth of his message. So too, Jesus empowered the disciples Uh, for the purpose of proclaiming the kingdom of God, of which healing diseases and casting out demons were signs that the kingdom of God had arrived. And these particular signs were given because, well, both demonic oppression and the oppression of diseases were indicative of being spiritually and physically bound to sin and death. And so what Jesus brings with the kingdom of God is not the saving of our souls so that we can go to a disembodied heaven when we die. Now, that's what the ancient Greeks believed. That's somewhat like what Hinduism or Buddhism hopes for, as if this world and our physical bodies are the problem. No, Jesus came to reverse the consequences of the fall into sin and to restore humanity and all of creation to its proper order and purpose in communion with God. In fact, not just to restore, but to glorify and to sanctify. Now remember, humanity was created as God's image bearers, and we were intended to rule over God's creation. So like Joseph serving at the right hand of Pharaoh, and included within that are the spiritual beings themselves that we were intended to rule over. That's why in Genesis 3, when Eve was deceived by the serpent and Adam straight up rejected God's word in rebellion, a role reversal occurred. A role reversal occurred. So despite being given the authoritative position within God's creation, including over both the spiritual beings and the animal kingdom, humanity became subject to the serpent and in turn became weak 
and vulnerable authorities within God's creation and unable to rule well. And as an aside, God never, He never deviated from His purposes for humanity. We are still called to have dominion and to be fruitful and to multiply. And it's clear that we are still head and shoulders above the rest of the animal kingdom. And it's not even close. But still, as everyone experiences every single day, things are not the way they are supposed to be. And everyone, regardless of whether they believe in the true God or not, knows that. They all know that. And God promise, God's promise to Eve was that He would restore humanity to its vaulted royal position within creation, enjoying the communion with God that was lost in the fall. It's why Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6.3, and the context for him saying this now is, is uh, in the, the context of Christians within a church bringing lawsuits against one another in secular court. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Just think about that. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And he's talking about church discipline as in like, what's wrong with you? Get it together. And then he tags this on. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? So Paul assumed that included within our salvation is the restoration of our roles as God's image bearers with dominion over God's world, including the rule over spiritual beings like angels. Now, I know there is a lot I could say, and by just taking that moment, I probably raised way more questions, but I'm just going to leave that for another time. It'll come up in the book of Daniel study, by the way, so let me encourage you to come to that. Uh, so the signs of the kingdom were rightly the healing of the body and the breaking of the chains of spiritual evil, with the ultimate sign of the coming of the kingdom being the resurrection of God's Son. Now, God always intended, He always intended to share His power and His glory with us, or else we would not be called His image bearers. So what is in view with this, even this early, just a few verses, first missionary work, is Jesus taking back the world from the tyranny of sin, evil, and Satan through His people. Through His people. This is something he still does today. And he does it, believe it or not, through the simple means of word, sacrament, and prayer. This is why as long as I am pastor here, we will be a church centered on and devoted to these things. And in turn, everything about our lives, the mission that we have in this world, in Butler County and beyond, you know, outside of this garden sanctuary, builds out from these God-given means of grace every Lord's Day for bringing forth His kingdom. What we are doing now may feel to some of you as a dead ritual. And let me tell you, God does not see it this way. He sees this as vital for your life. Your life in Him and in the vitality of your calling to be out in the world. So you are never participating more with the kingdom of God than when you engage in worship of your God with his people. Now, in verse 3, Jesus said to the disciples, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. 
So J Jesus commanded them basically not to take the normal stuff of road trips and instead to completely trust him for their provision. So this would be like asking a parent uh, to send his kid on a trip somewhere in Florida with no money, no phone, no clothes, no weapon, no toothbrush, no food, nothing like deep Florida, right? And in turn, to trust that God will provide for all your kids' needs. Now, this command ties into and anticipates the feeding of the 5,000 next week. You know, Jesus is the bread of life who provides for his people, even as it points back to God leading Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness where there was no food, no water, no shelter, and in turn, trusting him to provide for all their needs, especially on the Sabbath when there would be no manna and no quail. But Jesus will not always ask his disciples to do ministry in this way, and I don't think he asks us to do that either now, at least not typically. So in Luke 22, at the very, towards the very end of the gospel, beginning in verse 35, Jesus, in preparing the disciples for his coming death and resurrection, he asked them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they said. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And then they ask him, hey, we got enough for two swords. And he says, that'll be enough. So in this initial burst of ministry, everything will be provided for because Jesus is with them in the flesh, in the wilderness. But when Jesus has ascended to the throne and poured out his, his spirit, the serpent will attack. It will attack God's people, and they should be prepared for that. Ministry will be much harder at that later point. But in this moment, the disciples are very much like Israel sent out from Egypt, fully dependent on God for everything. They are the good soil, casting out God's word, seeking after more good soil. And the way they, they can know they have found good soil is by way of the test of hospitality. So on this initial mission trip, if a house received the disciples, they were to stay there for the length of time, uh, length of their time in whatever town they were in, and then bless basically their house with their presence. So this is very much in the vein of, say, Elijah, who blessed the home of the widow of Zarephath for years with his presence. And that, and that he found favor and hospitality outside of Israel was a judgment, was a judgment on Israel. Or like how Abraham in Genesis 18 received God and his two angels into his home versus how Sodom, the very next chapter, received the two angels. Now the way the prophet Ezekiel describes Sodom and he compares the Israel of his day in terms of, of Sodom. He said it, it's that she was full of pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Sodom was incredibly affluent, incredibly prosperous. That's why Lot, when given the choice, chose to live there. He chose Sodom. 
But what was her hospitality to God's angels like? It was pretty vile, deeply wicked. So the test of the good soil of Israel is how families and towns will receive the disciples and their proclamation of Jesus. And this establishes the pattern for how the kingdom of God will grow going forward. The kingdom will not be established at the temple. Though clearly the apostles continued to worship in the temple for a time after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, as Jesus makes clear in his teaching, Jesus himself replaced the temple as the true center of worship. No, no, no. The kingdom would come through a different house. Jesus himself that is not isolated to one place. And as you go through the book of Acts, Christians worship together in homes, just as uh, the disciples were received into homes on this initial mission. And when you read in Acts 2.42, for example, that the new Christian community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, that's all liturgical worship language, all of it. Just like we do on any given Sunday morning, word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship, all of this was done in people's homes. And when the disciples were welcomed into someone's home, like what you see later, say in Acts 10, with Peter and Cornelius, or in Acts 16, with Lydia, the assumption was that when the head of the house came to faith, like Cornelius and Lydia did, the whole household was blessed by that salvation and was in turn numbered among the people of God, just like what happened with Abraham and his very large household. The blessing is for you and your children, and so wherever God was present with his people, where two or three are gathered, in that place, worship and communion with God was a reality because Jesus, the temple, through his spirit, was among them. So the house that welcomed and received the disciples and their message was blessed by God and became a light of the kingdom. And that is still true today. However, in verse 5, Jesus says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, to get why this this symbolic action would have real traction uh, for an Israelite, just consider Isaiah 52. I'm not going to go all the way through the chapter. It's pretty awesome, but I'm not going to do that. Let's just look at the first two verses. I'll read it for you. It says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy symbol. That's redemption language. That's coming awake after a long sleep. That's basically resurrection-type language. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. And again, this is redemption language and speaks of no longer being tainted by sin and death. Everyone in that city will belong to God. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So, dust from Genesis 3 onward, is a symbol of death. Dust to dust, we still say at funerals, ashes to ashes. 
We were made from the ground, and by the curse of the fall, to the ground we will return. Likewise, the curse upon the serpent was to be in the dust, to be perpetually marked by death, to eat the dust, something that he could not escape. It's why the demon-possessed man of the Gerasenes lived among the unclean tombs, marked for death in the shame of nakedness. It's all Genesis 3 imagery. In Isaiah 52, when God says, shake yourself from the dust and arise, it's the promise of coming salvation and restoration of God's people, which looks forward to their literal resurrection from the dust, from the dead. Here's how God describes that that coming salvation in in the following verses. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Since Luke 4 and Jesus' first sermon, guess what? That's been the content. That's it. This has been the central motive of of Jesus' preaching. The kingdom of of God has shown up in him. The voice of your watchman. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So this too is the claim of the Gospels, that what we see gathered around Jesus, and maybe you remember this from like a little over a month ago, what we see gathered around Jesus is nothing short of the Lord God come to Zion in the flesh. God has returned to Israel in a far greater way than before. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This too will happen. It will occur at the crucifixion of Jesus when the Roman Empire together with the shepherds of Israel, crucify the Son of God. It is there that God's glory is most revealed. It is there that the Lord has bared His holy arm. It is there that Jew and Gentile together see the salvation of God and Satan and sin and death are conquered. Now the claim of all the Gospels is that Isaiah 52 is fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. This is the message that Jesus proclaimed. It's the same message, I guarantee you, that they preached in this first initial missionary journey. And it's the same message we proclaim today. So if a town did not receive this message about Jesus, it meant that they had chosen death instead of life. And thus, they were not the good soil and had, by implication, rejected the arm of the Lord. God's own son, just as their forefathers had rejected the prophets God had sent to them. So by their rejection of Jesus, they walked in death. Their feet were still covered in dust. And apart from Jesus, they could not wash it off. They could not put on beautiful garments. They could not be anything other than unclean. In contrast, those who receive Jesus, shake off the dust of death. They walk in light of him. They have had their feet washed by him. 
and have the promise that they will arise on the last day in the resurrection. It's like Jesus' lament from Matthew 23. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you, you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what the gospel entails then, when you think about that, is not freedom from any and all restraints. It's just not. That's, that's the modern illiberal vision of what freedom is, where we believe we have the right to choose and define ourselves however we want. And it's not only impossible, go ahead and try, it's not only impossible, it's insanity. And you see that writ large in our, our culture right now. No, it's like what Moses said to Pharaoh. Let this people go so that they may worship the true God out in the wilderness. Life, you see, is found in communion and worship with the one who made the heavens and the earth, who created us for himself, giving us divine purpose as his image bearers within this world, and it's found nowhere else. Now, to be sure, there are many things claiming to give life. But they are chains of death. They are ultimately chains of death. And they keep us in the dust. And no doubt, those who rejected Jesus did not think they were actually choosing death. Just the opposite. In the case of the scribes and Pharisees, they thought their feet were clean. And they thought they were right. It's like what Jesus says in, in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what God offered Adam in the garden. The serpent offered unlimited freedom. This is what God offered Adam in the garden, and he turned away from it. It's what he offers us now in his son. So it's, it's either the unbearable burden of being ruled by sin and death, though we often call that autonomy or self-expression, versus being ruled by the Son of God who shares his power and glory with us, whose burden is light. Now, in the remaining three verses, we read that Herod Tetrarch, this is the son of the Herod who attempted to murder Jesus at his birth, and in turn, in a kind of serpent, pharaoh-type sort of move, committed genocide, otherwise known as the slaughter of the innocents. He had heard about everything that was happening in Galilee, and he was, as the text says, perplexed by it. The reason is that some people claimed that John the Baptist had been resurrected after Herod had, he knew, beheaded him. Others claimed that Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, had appeared and still others said some other ancient prophet had been resurrected. So while there is confusion over who exactly Jesus is, at least on the, the, the large front, still the gospel of the kingdom had reached the person who practically functioned as the king of the Jews and who in turn wanted to see Jesus. So will he, like the king of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, repent 
and look to Jesus for life, or will he be like most of the kings of Israel before him and refuse to receive God into his home and thereby kill him? Now, this will be borne out over the course of the gospel. I think if you know the gospels, you know how that that story goes. But it's a live question for every human even now. As Isaiah in chapter 55, in three chapters after the announcement of the coming salvation of Israel, says this to Israel. We've already used it once today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Think about that. He's not off somewhere. He's near. He's near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God wants to show mercy. He is not far off. He is in fact near. Or as Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That is an incredible, beautiful summary of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gospel of the kingdom of God in your Son, Jesus the Christ. And may those of us who have received him, may we grow in his likeness into maturity, recognizing we are immature even now. Some of us even feel like babies and endeavor to follow after Jesus. Now may those of us who have not received him Hear his voice and open the door to him. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, through the Spirit. Amen.